0: Have you seen this saying before? I wrote that many years ago in one of my Bibles when I was a young guy. And for those of you who consider yourself young or younger here among us today, that would be a good thing for you to do because it's so true. When it comes to the Bible, sin will keep you from your Bible. And your Bible, if you read it, You meditate on it. You allow it to live in your life. It will keep you from sin. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's the weapon we have. It's the defense we have in the battle we all face with sin. And so this morning we come and I've entitled our message this morning How to Grow Up Spiritually. How to grow up Spiritually, and we look together at verse 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Peter writes, So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Just by way of review, we've been away from First Peter a couple of weeks, and I did that because I wanted to just give some variety. Um, and thinking of the Olympics, and thinking a passage in First Corinthians nine appropriate, but to take a break and then come back to Peter today as we launch into chapter two. In the first part of chapter One, we saw that Peter is giving um, truths and statements about our salvation, that we've been caused to be born again into a living hope. For the first twelve verses, he basically just underpacked unpacked what wonderful truths that God has done for us in Christ. the richness of our salvation we, we preached a four part message on our amazing salvation, those first twelve verses. And so they are the indicatives. They are the statements we are called upon to believe. Okay, And then he turns the corner, as New Testament writers often do, and he talks starts talking about the practical issues. And we saw that from verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 3, where we are today, there are commands to obey. Christian life is two things. It is... It is reading what the Word of God says with regard to its statements of truth about our position in Christ and who we are and what Christ has done and who God is. And those we are called upon to believe, right? We are called upon to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, and be saved. But more than that, as we live our life by faith, we learn more of God's truth and we're called upon to believe those truths in every one of those truths even the difficult truths, the hard truths. But there's also commands which we are called upon to obey. And faith does this. It not only believes the promises of God, but faith also obeys and responds in obedience to the commands of God. Faith not only believes the promises of God, but faith also, with its with will, shows its obedience to what God commands. Because we have come into a relationship with Christ. We saw it in the practical section. Trying to go backwards here. I am pushing the right button this time. Sorry. In the practical section, we saw that we had to live a life of hope. That's verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're to live a life of holiness because our Father is holy, our God is holy. We are to be holy as He is holy. To be holy doesn't mean that you um, are like a Pharisee and just do good things outwardly, obviously. Holiness has, reaches right to the inside as well. Holiness means that you're set apart for God. Even inanimate things in the Old Testament were called holy. The dishes at the temple and so forth, um, they were called holy. Why? Because they were set apart for God's use. And we're set apart from sin to God. we to live a life of holiness, a life of reverence. We have a father, and it's wonderful to call God father, but Peter says in verse 17 to 21, don't ever forget that he's a God who judges. He judges each man's work impartially. Don't treat him lightly. Don't become overly familiar with the God you call Father when you remember that he has the right to chasten us. Hebrews 12 talks about his chastening hand, and we saw last week, didn't we, in 1 Corinthians 10, how Paul used the illustration of the Israelites in the wilderness, and the sins that they fell into, and the chastening which came. Strong chastening from God. And So if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Fear the Lord in your life. And if you fear the Lord, you will fear sin. Live a life of reverence. Live a life of love. Look at verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love in other words this is a result of having your souls purified at salvation it's that the result is you now have a sincere unhypocritical unfeigned love for other believers that's a result of salvation and then the call the command love one another earnestly it literally means to stretch out with every fiber of love you have in order to love Others, love one another earnestly or fervently, live a life of love. And today we come to the issue of living a life of growth. And that sounds awkward, doesn't it? Live a life of growth. And I'm not too happy with that. I'm not happy because it's messed up my kind of outline here. Um, So I've rephrased it today, how to grow up spiritually, but you get the idea. How do we do that? Do you want to grow in your Christian life? What does it mean? What does it look like? And how do I mature as a Christian? We weren't just saved in the past at one point of time, and then that's it, and then glorification, right? We've got this difficult and sometimes painful process in the middle called sanctification, It's salvation, as we've said before, over and over again, we were saved from the penalty of our sin. One day in glory, we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. But now in the present, between the time we got saved and the time we see the Lord, we have this process. By the way, when we got saved, that was an act of God whereby He declared us justified, an act, a one-time action. Glorification is a one-time action. But in the middle is this process whereby we are called to live up to, by God's grace, His the position we have been given in Christ. We're called upon to be in our condition day by day, 24-7, as best we can with the um, strength of the Lord and His grace at work in our life, to be all we should be and all that we can be in accordance with what he has made us already in Christ. If you want to put it this way, Christian growth is about becoming what you already are. Does that make sense? It's kind of a little bit weird, but that's the truth. You already, in God's sight, through justification, are sanctified. All your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Colossians 1 talks about that. Um, in Christ... You have, you have been clothed with his righteousness. In God's sight, you have been declared righteous, even while still in the present time, we still struggle with sin. Praise the Lord for that. And that's not a reason to presume on his grace, so that we sin, it's okay, in God's sight, I'm righteous as Christ, because his righteousness is imputed to me. No, Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound? No mean, by no means. And so we're striving, we're striving to become more like Christ as His Spirit, which He's given us as a down payment in Ephesians 1, like the engagement ring, um, a deposit guaranteeing this inheritance that He's been talking about in chapter 1, verse 4. And with the promises of Scripture that He's given to us, the guidance and the Word of God, with these resources in Christ, we can be what He wants us to be. And when we use these resources, when we... Um, appropriate the things which are given us in Christ, we can glorify God in the here and now. And we can honor the Lord and we can be live the kind of life that is going to win the respect of outsiders and provide the foundation for our testimony and our speech about Christ and win a dying world, a lost generation. And so we, we look this morning here at this important principle, how to grow up spiritually. How to become more mature. There's three things this morning. Three simple things that unpack basically just verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. And we firstly need to deal with our sin. We secondly need to desire the word, desire God's word. And lastly, we need to delight in the Lord. Deal with your sin. Desire the word and delight in the Lord, verse 3. Let's look firstly at the first one. Deal with your sin. Sorry. Look with me at this one. Peter writes, So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. That's his first instruction. I want to suggest to you, this is obviously connected to what he's just said in chapter 1, about particularly the issue of love in verse 22 he raised. Because if we are going to love with this iktane, um, love—the stretching out, love, the sincere love and unfeigned love toward our brethren—what are some of the things that erode that kind of love? They are mentioned here in verse one: malice, deceit, hypocrisy. The word "put away" there at the beginning—it's it, used by um, it's used by Luke in the book of Acts. Uh, with regard to people laying aside clothing. Literally, the idea that you take off clothing. When Stephen was about to be stoned, it says there that they, the men laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named two. Saul. The same word is used there, to put away or to lay aside. They actually took off their outer garments and placed them at the feet of Saul. Paul uses it in the New Testament in a metaphorical sense of taking off filthy um, attitudes and things that dishonor the Lord in, in life, um, we're to take off certain attitudes and behaviors. See your idea. We note that the ability to love others is related to the purity of our hearts. You see, if we're to love without Hypocrisy, and we've got to lay aside hypocrisy. If unhypocritical love is the goal, then hypocrisy is going to destroy that, and so will things like malice. It's a word which means general wickedness. It's quite quite a broad term, but he's specifically targeting the issue of personal relationships. In fact, all of these five things that he lists in verse, five, verse 1 are uh, issues that destroy relationships that harm personal relationships. These are the sins which many of our TV shows and soap operas these days are based upon and are filled with. Is that not true? I remember Coronation <laughs> Street in the days of Ena Sharples. It may surprise you that I'm that old. <laughs> not really. But... But it's a a lot different now, isn't it, to what it was? It's filled with themes and plots and so many other soap operas with issues of animosity within relationships, malice, revenge, and deceit, and envy, and slander, and that feeds these desires for those who watch that. Why is it that we uh, condemn these sins... On one level, but then why is it that sometimes we're open to be entertained by these sins as other people do them on a television series? Instead of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, these are things which destroy our neighbor. Sinful words and attitudes. The word deceit, it's a translation of a word which in its verb, verb form, it means to catch with bait. It's the idea of deceit. If you're a fisherman, you're involved in this kind of deceit, literally, right? Your whole your whole ability to have success is based on your skill of your deceit. To fool that fish. And I love fishing, so I'm involved in this in this sense. Um, but we need the Lord's help, don't we? Not to fall into patterns of deceit. In the noun form, where Peter uses it here, it speaks of craftiness. Uh, um subtleness, perhaps to to conceal the truth or partly conceal the truth, deceit, hypocrisy. Peter focuses on this word, and this is the sin of assuming mannerisms, speech, character of someone else. Thus. Someone who hides their true identity, we often think that a person's a hypocrite if they're someone who um is inconsistent, like they say one thing and they do another. that's certainly part of hypocrisy, but the quintessence the key idea in hypocrisy is that you wear a mask. It's the idea that you're an actor, in fact, the Greek actors um use this word. Uh, The Greek culture used this word to describe the actors on the Greek stage. Hippocrates um, is the idea. In other words, you're playing a role which isn't truly who you are. This was the sin of the Pharisees, wasn't it? This was the sin of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, it looks like a real clean plate. looks really good on the outside, but Jesus says on the inside is just filth. He says, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. See the difference there? Inside is right, the outside will be right. It will be whole. There won't be any difference. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, he says. No wonder they hated him. Why? Because he he ripped off their masks and he did it publicly, as only he could, because he knew the hearts of men. You appear outwardly beautiful, but within you are full of dead men's bones in all uncleanness. You you religious leaders are like sparkly white tombs, but on the inside in your life you're like dead men's bones, you're like an open grave on the inside. Hypocrisy. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy is the issue of pretending. Uh, Freddie Mercury used to sing, Yes, I'm the great pretender. Pretending that I'm doing well, I seem to be what I'm not, you see. I'm wearing my heart like a crown. Hypocrisy. So, unreality, a lack of authenticity in our relationships destroys relationships. If... Because because relationships are built on two things primarily, aren't they? Trust and respect. And if there's deceit, if there's hypocrisy, if you're dealing with a person who's not real or there's reasons to make you feel they're not being honest with you, then your trust and respect for that person is going to go down. You say, what's the opposite? Well, the opposite is integrity. It's really interesting. The word integrity comes from the Latin word integer. And we understand integer because we all love mathematics, don't we? And what's the idea with an integer? It's a whole number. It's, it's whole. It's fully formed. Um, and this is where the word integrity comes from. It's the idea of wholeness deriving from qualities such as honesty and consistency. So hypocrisy is what Peter reminds us to deal with as well. One writer says envy, oh sorry, we move to envy. It refers to the attitude of resentment which rises towards the prosperity or the advantages of other people. This is very real stuff, isn't it? These are attitudes that are prevalent in our society today, even glorified. It's the inward attitude which resents the prosperity of others. Whatever outward conditions someone might have, it's related to the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. It's related to that. Um, One writer says, envy is the running mate of hypocrisy. As hypocrisy has its spring in claiming to have the good we lack, envy seeks to deny and defame the real good of others. So see the relationship there? Hypocrisy makes out we're good when we're not. Envy seeks to bring down the good reputation of others, sometimes to deny and defame their reputation and desire what they have in a negative sense. And then slander, lastly. The word here literally means down-speaking. It's got the, got the little preposition kata at the beginning, which means down in um, speaking. It's a compound word. It means that you run down people. It refers to any speech that harms or is intended to harm another person's status or reputation. You, you might say that I've never stolen um, anything in my life. Um, but have you stolen someone's reputation through the words that you've spoken of them? When Grudem writes, all these sins aim at harming other people, whereas love seeks the good of others. So if we're going to grow as a Christian, we have first to put aside these attitudes in our life. And it's not the idea that this is a one-time event that happens in your life. Yeah, I did that back in January the 1st, 1993. I dealt with all these sins. No, our hearts are like gardens, and if your garden's anything like mine, we grow these weeds, don't we? And we need to deal with them if we're going to grow. And we can deal with them. Let me encourage you. We can deal with sin. we sin in Christ Grace increases all the more, and God has given us the resources to do these. He never commands us to do anything, which he doesn't also give us the power to do. And so I want to hold that hope out to you today with besetting sins, which perhaps um, there's one area in your life that you're constantly battling. Uh, There is hope in God's grace, in the Spirit of God, and through the discipline you bring to bear upon your life in those areas You can have victory. The New Testament holds that out. But if we're going to desire to grow and desire the word, which is our second point, we need to do that. Secondly, desire the word. Desire the word. Thanks, Gil. Now, those of you who have had children, have children, particularly young ones, you're going to, relate to this, or all of us to some extent have seen the demand that a baby has for milk in she's 10 months now, and uh, milk is high on her agenda every day. Her to-do list, mainly milk and food, even now. And so I've seen this insatiable thirst that Peter is calling from believers to have towards not on milk, but spiritual milk. We are to have a strong desire for God's word is what he's saying here. And these two verses, verse 1 and 2, are related grammatically, and it's the idea here that you've got to deal with verse 1 if you're ever going to be able to obey verse 2. In other words, when these sins are within our life, they blunt our appetite for the things of God. My Dad used to say to us kids when we were um sick he would just used the phrase "Oh son you're off your oats. Have you heard that one anyone <laughs> you're you're off your oats what's he mean Well, when you get sick often you don't feel like eating right you're off your oats you is is something that you're fighting something else which is taking up your um, Normal bodily desires and your appetite is blunted and it's the same in the spiritual realm. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Don't be surprised if they're in your life that correspondingly your desire for the things of God and the word of God is going to go down. You must first remove those and then you will be in a place to desire God's word. Sin affects our hunger for God's Word. Peter here commands us to insatiably thirst for God's Word. Now sometimes the Bible contrasts the milk of the Word with the meat of the Word. And you go to 1 Corinthians 3 and you see that. You go to Hebrews 5 verse 12 and you see that. Um, Paul said, "I, I fed you with milk because you weren't ready for solid food. 1 Corinthians 3. Here I don't believe the way he's using the word milk here is in contrast to the meat. I think the focus here is on the desire that needs to be within the believer for what kind of milk? The Word of God. The Word of God. And that's something that not just new believers should have in their life, but something that all believers should have, regardless if you've been in Christ for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. A longing. You think about Psalm 42. I love Psalm 42. How does it begin? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My heart longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. This this spiritual hunger for God and God's truth. So important. It's interesting because Psalm 42, corresponding with that hunger for God, you also have the psalmist wrestling with real downcastness. Because it's that in that psalm he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Hope thou in God, he says. He's longing for God, but his soul isn't where he wants it to be, and he cries out to God and he talks to himself. He says, Hope thou in God in the midst of my despondency. My hungering after God, I I will put my hope in God. Is that you? Is that where your heart is today? Is it is it a situation where you come to a sermon where the Word of God is unpacked, and and you you come longing for that? It's like just give me the Word. Just give me give me sustenance for my soul. I long for it. I want to know more of the Word because the it's the Word that gives me Christ. Right. Notice here in verse 2, it's not purely just that we long for the Word, but the purpose is, in the second part of verse 2, that by it you may grow up to salvation. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's I want to know that because I want to grow as a Christian. There's a desire in my heart to glorify the Lord. Do you long for the Word? Come with me to Psalm one. Psalm one. I got a different Bible today. This is my brother Gavin's. Um, I forgot my Bible today. How bad is that? Just saying. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, you're different. This man is blessed. This person is different because they are set apart from these other sinful ways and sinful people. You say, what does he find his delight in? If it's not in the wickedness of sinners, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers, what is it? But his delight, where is it? Is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You see, it's not just like a chapter a day keeps the devil away, as some might say. It's kind of like, yeah, I've had my Bible reading this morning, therefore I'm bulletproof for the day, done that, Tick that off the list. This psalmist's, statement here concerning the blessedness of this one is that it starts with an internal desire. It's where his delight is. There is sweetness, there is satisfaction found in the law of the Lord, and as a result of that, it's on his law, he meditates day and night. This is not just some spiritual discipline to kind of tick off the box, this is the natural flow of the believer's heart when... There is nothing else hindering this spiritual desire like sin that Peter mentions. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In verse 3, there's promises that he, shall be, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. You go to Psalm 119, and from beginning to end, the longest chapter in the Bible speaks of the psalmist's heart and desire for God's word, and more than that, God's word and his desire on the inside that his life might be in accord with it. And then I love, you get right to the very last verse of Psalm 119, verse 176. And as you read through that whole psalm and you see the level of intensity of the psalmist's spiritual desire for God's Word, it's quite intimidating. It's like, who is this guy? It's like super, Superman, spiritually. How can you have a heart like that? But he comes towards the end of it, right at the end, and he, he confesses this. This is encouraging to me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. How can, how can you comprehend that after everything you just read in the 175 verses? He, he confesses, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. And he says, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. Amy Grant used to sing that song, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I will not forget your love to me and yet my heart forever is... Wandering, right? Words of the song, the words of the psalmist speak of our natural tendency to depart from this passionate yearning for God and God's word. And that longing is not natural to an unsaved person. Jesus said in John eight thirty seven, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. The reason you're seeking to kill me is because you have no room in your heart for my word. You are blocking out my word. Ten verses later he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's an indication that you really belong to God. Rather than listening to the world's philosophies and the um, ideologies that are false, and are built upon the wisdom of men. Your desire, you belong to the eternal God of truth. And as a result, with the resident truth teacher within you, the Holy Spirit, your ears are open. Remember, Jesus said all the time, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. (coughs) And believers are those whose ears have been opened. And truth resonates within them, doesn't it? And if it doesn't, ever resonate within you, if you find within your heart that you want to push aside truth or suppress truth, Romans 1 verse 18 and following, they suppress the knowledge of God, then it could be that you have never been redeemed. It could be that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth does not dwell within you. We ought to examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. Paul says in Colossians three sixteen, let the word of Christ dwell in you what? Richly. So we are to desire the word. And deal with our sin and desire the word. And then lastly, and briefly, first Peter two verse three. Delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. He says in verse 3, is a motivation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The grammar, the construction here says that it's an assumption that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's called a first class conditional clause. Okay, that's just for free. But it's it's the idea that um, when he says uses the word "if," and again, just for free, sometimes in Greek in the English translation there 'll be a word "if" and it 's translated the word "if, but the Greek actually gives you one, two, three classes of conditional clauses. The first class means the if" really means since in other words, this is established fact there 's no doubt about it. Second class there's a bit more doubt third class there's possibly on the level of actual English interpretation of if. There really is enough, okay? This is since you have tasted that the Lord is good. In chapter 1, verse 3, he talked about our salvation. He said, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living home. In chapter 1, verse 23, he said, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. You see the contrast here? He's saying that it's the Word of God which was the means by which you were saved, but it's also the Word of God now that is the means through which you are sanctified. The Word, chapter 1, verse 23, you are born again through the imperishable seed of the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 3 says that you are sanctified, you grow by that same Word. For our evangelism, and for every spiritual leader within the life of the church it's so important to give people the word right if you serve up people popular opinion or the comments of the day or the latest philosophy that's out there they're not going to grow because the growth comes through this longing for the word so important in second Timothy 4 Paul said to uh, Timothy that there's a time coming when men will no longer put up with Sound doctrine. In other words, they're going to refuse that. The word sound there is the word hygiene. It's from which we get our word hygiene. It's the idea of healthy doctrine. And Peter alludes to that idea here when he uses the word pure. It's unadulterated. It's uncontaminated spiritual truth. And it's healthy. It brings health to our souls compared to false teaching. But sadly, even within the church today, you have some who are no longer putting up with sound doctrine. Why? Because their desire is for something else. They want their ears tickled rather than to be confronted with, to use a phrase from Isaiah, being confronted with the Holy One of Israel. And so what do they do? Instead of wanting the word, they heap to themselves teachers, People, they hire people and pastors who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. So the pew is really running what's going on in the pulpit. And back in the um, early English days, often the, um, the preachers and the priests of the churches were paid by the establishment and those who were high and mighty in the land and wealthy. And so they would often call for what the preacher would say but the word of God the authority of the word of God is to be given preeminence why? because that's the only thing that brings salvation, it's the only thing that brings sanctification, Jesus said in John 17 17, he said sanctify them by your truth and your word is truth verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good isn't that a wonderful way of describing salvation? That we are those who have tasted that the Lord is good. You say that today? You say amen to that? The Lord is good. In him there is no wickedness. I love that verse in the Psalms. I can't remember the reference, but you guys can look it up. It says, They will still stay fresh and green in old age. Proclaiming the Lord is my rock, and in him there is no wickedness, John says that in him is light, and in him there is no darkness. John first John chapter one we've tasted that the Lord is good, and is it not true also that the taste of the world and the emptiness of it when we're truly walking with the Lord is unappealing in a sense? when we're fully in the zone of um, following close to the Lord and we're near to him, that's the point when we're strong. And we can see through the hollowness and the empty vainness of the world around us which captivates everyone else and we can proclaim, no, the Lord is good and him is my satisfaction. There may be pleasure and sin for a season, but it's only for a season. Young people who hear today, the Lord is good, and Him is your satisfaction, and you'll never find it anywhere else. The twelve disciples were with Jesus in John chapter six, and it was at a point when many who were following Christ turned away from following Him. And Jesus, looking upon this, rather than being afraid that the His own twelve, true blue. Well, they went all true blue, were they, except for Judas. But his closest companions, the nearest and dearest disciples to him, might want to go away too. And instead of being worried about that, he said to them, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter, who was like the leader of the leaders, he said, to, said these words, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no, there's, salvation is found in no one else. If you, if you walk away from Christ... You're heading for vanity. King Solomon had it all, didn't he, in his life? had everything he could possibly desire. And at the end of it all, he wrote, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. Live for Christ. Find true satisfaction in Him. And it just reminds us this morning that we're not here just talking about running through the Word of God and having our quiet times and establishing yourself intellectually with a comprehension of the truth, know that it's the truth which brings us Christ. We love the Word because it gives us Christ. And Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, that I may know Him, that I may know Him. That's his one cry. and Ever since he was saved and all through 30 years of Christian service, it was his heart's cry, that I may know Him. Chapter 1 verse 8, Peter wrote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Salvation, folks, is not just to be seen as something that you get. Okay? It's kind of like I've got salvation now. No, it's better to see salvation as a communion a relationship that you begin. I came to Christ. And look at verse 4. As you come to Him. You know what's interesting? The words there are in the present tense, in the original language, and it means as you continually come to Him. So you've tasted that the Lord is good, and then salvation, as you live out that Christian life, it's a matter of continually coming to Him. John 7 verse 37, Jesus says, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? Do you reckon that's a one-time thing in the original or a present tense habitual coming and a habitual thirsting? And you'd be right, it is. It's a continual idea. Jesus says, if anyone is continually thirsting, let him continually come to me and continually drink. Out of his innermost belly will flow rivers of living water. Delight in the Lord. Desire His Word. And deal with your sin. And when we do that, we will grow up into our salvation. Until finally one day when faith will become sight. And we'll be saved completely from the very presence of sin. And we'll see our Savior face to face. That's a course and that's a trajectory to get our souls on line with, isn't it? Let's pray with me.